0: Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week to explore Kitavo, it's wonderful to welcome back Tsvi Konersberg, who worked alongside the late Professor Adam Zertzel throughout the Ebal explorations during the 1980s. He is, of course, the author of The Lost Temple of Israel. Um, as well as a number of other key articles, and has also worked with a number of the key uh, archaeologists in, in the region. Welcome back, Svi, and really look forward to exploring uh, the week's parashah again through the archaeological lens. And I think you want to maybe start by addressing the when. This was all written.
1: Okay, let's start with one basic question that I asked Professor Benjamin Mazar many years ago. We're talking about Chapter 27, which describes the ceremony of the blessing and the curse, and of course the construction of an altar at Mount Ibal, which we think we have discovered. And I asked him a very simple question, is Deuteronomy 27 an integral part of what's known as the core of the book of Deuteronomy? Over 90% of the book is considered one literary core, or is it an outlier or something that was added years later or taken from a previous source? And he said, there's a very clever young man who teaches Bible at Hebrew University and go ask him. So I went to ask that clever young man who was Professor Zakovich who last year won the Israel Prize in the Bible, and he said certainly it's part of the same, it's part of that core. Now, having said that, what is the general consensus scientifically of the time of writing of that core of Deuteronomy? It goes to the story related in the at the end of the Book of Kings, part two, chapters 22-23, about the high priest Chilkia going into the temple, finding a scroll, bringing it to Shafan, the scribe, whose Bula, by the way, whose personal seal was discovered a number of years ago here in Jerusalem. And Shafan brings it to the king, Josiah, and Josiah looks at it and, and basically says, Oivei. Tears his clothes as a sign of mourning, and what he goes about doing a whole bunch of things, but primarily destroying all the places of sacrifice outside of Jerusalem. And in other words, he enacted something which can be described as centralization of the cult. Now comes a Swiss priest, the name Devetta, in 1805, and writes a very long paper in Latin, and contends that what the scroll that was discovered was actually written by the henchmen or scribes of Josiah to justify centralizing the political power and every other power in Jerusalem, selling Coca-Cola at the Yishchem Gate and drafting soldiers at the Dung Gate, get the idea, and collecting taxes at the Jaffa Gate or whatever. And you centralize the control by putting a scroll Uh, justifying centralization, which is what Deuteronomy is all about, the place that he will choose, putting it into the mouth of Moses for historical and theological uh, importance. And there you go. And that is the basic idea that this was all constructed around the time of Josiah, approximately 620 BC. Now, it's not only that, if you look at the first page of the most important book in Hebrew written about Deuteronomy by uh, academic scholars, he says that D, dating D, in other words, the core of Deuteronomy, is to the time of Josiah is an absolute axiom, and all the balance of the sources that science and academia attribute to the Bible are based on that dating. In other words, if that falls down, everything falls down. Now watch what happens, <coughs> if you go to verse 4 and verse 13 of Deuteronomy, of chapter 27 in Deuteronomy, of course, and you go to verse, chapter 8, verse 30 of Joshua is described, the Mount Ebal is described with one letter, Behar Eval, it says, in Mount Ebal, what does that mean, in the mountain? It could be anything, really. It doesn't necessarily have to specify anything, but it's a grizim. When it relates to grizim, it says alha grizim, on Mount Grizim. So why in Mount Ibal and on Mount Grizim? So I asked a whole bunch of knowledgeable people Is it, we don't know. But when you look at the physical attributes of the site that we excavated at Mount Ibal, that it's on a ledge of the mountain on the northeast side, not at the top of the mountain, not at the bottom of the mountain. Now, it was deliberately covered up and never, for all we know, never visited again because there are hardly any signs of pottery from periods later than Iron One, the period when the site was actually built. So the question is how 600 years later, during the time of King Josiah, could someone know that this site was in Mount Ebal? That's stage one. Step two, when we excavated to the bottom of the altar, we found stones covered with plaster. And I personally found the plaster pit where where that was used to make that plaster covering for those stones. We've been trying, by the way, to look at If there's any writing on the stones, we haven't found any. But how did someone 600 years later know that plaster was a part of the ceremony. This was covered up for six hundred years, never visited, never mentioned again in in Tanakh anywhere. Highly unlikely. Now, so highly unlikely. I asked this question of probably the most important biblical scholar in the, at Harvard University at the time, but no name dropping here, and he said he gave me a list of three books which related to memory being oral memory being transferred to writing, and I read all three studiously, and none of them allows for this kind of a possibility, that these kind of details would be remembered orally for 600 years and only written down 600 years later. Impossible. Impossible. In other words, the texts relating to the core of the book of of Deuteronomy we can safely date to 1200 BC, which means that the entire dating system of academia today has to think about this a bit, because it's it basically shows that the whole house of cards of dating, based on the idea that Deuteronomy is a product of 620 BC, is flawed at best. And this is a lot of room for thought. Now, assuming that this was written then, what really happened at this site? When we look at it carefully, we look at, we see that there are two different versions and descriptions of the ceremony. According to the book of Deuteronomy, six tribes went up on Mount Ebal, six tribes went on Mount Rezim, the priests and the ark were at the bottom, and they were shouting the blessings and the curses from mountain to mountain. When you go to the Book of Joshua, on the other hand, you can understand from the Book of Joshua that they were all in one place and just turned in different directions to hear the blessings and the curses. Everybody was in the same place. Now, when you look at the geography of the site that we excavated at Mount Ebal. The second description makes a lot of sense because the altar is at the top of a ledge and there's a very large sloping valley beneath it which could have enabled thousands of people to see what was going on at the altar and watching the ceremony. It makes all the sense in the world that the version in Joshua is the one that actually happened. Why... Is there a version in Deuteronomy which is unlikely? I don't know. (laughs) That's one of the things that I've been thinking about now for close to 40 years, and I don't have a solution, but I'm quite certain that the version in Joshua is the one that describes what happened. Why anyone would want to construct a a literary concept of having six tribes here, six tribes there? I don't know. It's beyond me. And I'm still looking for the answer. I don't give up. Now, another question, uh, what is the Ebal site? When we look at the Book of Deuteronomy, it says you're building an altar in Mount Ebal, and you're doing this ceremony of the blessing and the curse, which is very important because it contains the sentence um, 27.9, This day you have become the nation of the Lord your God. This is the birth of Israel, according to the Bible. There is no other sentence anywhere in Tanakh which relates to the birth of Israel. None. It says in Hebrew, This day you have become the nation of the Lord your God. In other words, something very serious is going on here. I started to look at this many years ago, primarily after one occurrence. That occurrence was the drawing of a topographic map of the site and I saw that the site contained an outer enclosure uh, wall encompassing some fortune dunam and an inner wall about four dunams and everything that took place in other words the altar etc was inside that inner wall and immediately it reminded me of what was in Jerusalem the second temple which had an outer wall and inner wall and everything that happened within this inner wall. And then I started to think in terms of temple. And I went to uh, Professor Mazar, and he was kind enough to give me, not lend me, his book by Professor Menachem Haran, who's a blessed memory of uh, Hebrew University, he wrote the last important work on the subject of Israelite temples. And he had a bunch of criteria, which he described uh, as the requ- requirements for a temple. Aside from the fact, by the way, we found a, an incense altar, which was an integral part of the temple ceremony. And all of the attributes that Haran attributed to a temple were present at Ibal. And I had a five-year conversation with him, and it, it wasn't going well until a certain point when I reread his book for the umpteenth time. And I saw that he wrote in his book where you write the phrase, Samachta rejoice before the Lord your God, that is temple related. And Deuteronomy 27.7 says precisely that. And then he said, you know what, you might be right. And that might very well be a temple. By the way, those who are familiar with Maimonides, the laws of the chosen house, he cites the same criteria basically as Harandas for the presence of a temple. Now I've been scuffed at (laughs) for dozens of years for this absurd concept of the first temple of Israel not being in Jerusalem, right? Until the discovery of the amulet at Ebal two years ago, which was recently deciphered and which will be published soon. It's a curse amulet. Now just think of a curse amulet, Mount Ebal, it's, it's an insane idea that Something like that actually existed, but it does. And one of the books that was recommended to me by my illustrious friend at Harvard was something called Scribal Culture and the Making of the Hebrew Bible by Professor van der Toorn of Amsterdam, where he says the following, that where you find structured writing in an ancient Israelite site, that site of necessity must be described as a temple. And there are no two ways about it. So after 40 years, I feel good that I was right. Now, I've been looking at this, well, as I described, for a very long time. There is no other site anywhere in the land of Israel that has been defined, that has been mentioned in the Torah. You have the Maratha Machpelah and all that, but who knows what's there and what was there. We're far from having a serious knowledge of what was going on there. Here you have an altar, which it's very difficult to define this site as anything else Something mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, which has been the crux of dating biblical materials by academia for a few hundred years now. Why has this been ignored so thoroughly and completely by both biblical scholars and by archeologists? It's completely insane. This should be the paradigm by which we judge an entire series. Just think of the idea of 613 commandments. Tradition has it that 613 commandments were handed, were to be found in the text of the Torah, as explained by the rabbis. About half of them relate to functions that actually happened at Mount Ebal, relating to construction of altars, relating to sacrifices, etc. Here you have. A solution potentially to half of the issues that the Torah speaks about. It's just mind boggling to think that this has been ignored, but it's also been ignored by religion almost completely. A lot of Orthodox people know about this thing, and the interest that has been generated has been minimal compared to what it deserves. Why do you think that is, sweet? Started from the time of the rabbis. See If you go to the the Mishnah, the Tractate of Zavachim, or Sacrifices, Chapter 14, it lists all of the important sites that were in Israel through the years. And they don't mention Mount Ebal at all, even though the Ark was present at the site according to the Book of Joshua. So how could an Ark be present at the site and not be mentioned as part of the story? But it's very simple. The Mishnah was written at the time that the Samaritans were prevalent in that area, and they didn't want to write anything good about about Samaria at all. And that's why it's not there. That's the only reason I can come up with. There's no other reason on earth. And overseas tradition followed the centralization of the cult. this is laid out in that chapter 14 of the tractate of Zvachimo sacrifices and of course they did not have the they didn't have the historical issues correct which is not surprising because a lot of time had passed and these things were gone from the collective memory and were only accidentally completely <laughs> discovered by us 40 years ago and if not for that, who knows? And I think it, the concept of decentralization and my idea of Shiloh replacing Mount Ebal as the central holy site, with because of the story, if you recall, the crossing of the arms of Jacob in chapter forty-eight, when blessing the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, that represented the transfer of the central holy site of Israel from the elder son Manasseh to the younger son. Uh, Ephraim in Shiloh, we found now recently in the excavations of Shiloh, that there was a gap in Shiloh of 100 years from 1250 to 1150 BC, precisely the time we think that Ibal was active. In other words, the, central, the idea of centralization was actually there from the get-go, from the beginning, because Deuteronomy was there from the get-go. And if you read Leviathan, of Hobbes. Strangely enough, Hobbes wrote that the description in the Book of Kings, part two, unlike the interpretation of the Swiss priest, he thinks that's a real account of something that actually happened. They found this scroll, which had been neglected for many years, which was this Deuteronomy, which actually existed and then was lost, probably, or misplaced during the turmoil of everything that happened to the ark and subsequently, and that's that. So we may have cracked part of the story, but there's still plenty that remains to be understood about this entire thing, which is why it's being taught in 3,300 universities around the world, aside from all the Jewish institutions that teach these things. And of course, there are divergent opinions, even among the Orthodox about all sorts of issues relating to this, not to mention the Uh, scientific analyses of Bible, which have tremendous ranges of differences of opinion, because it's so difficult to get through to the facts. And here you have something that's supplying you with so many of the facts, and it's just ignored, I hope for not much longer, I'd like to see in my lifetime, that this place becomes accessible to the public in a normal way, something I've been trying to do for a long time, extraordinarily unsuccessfully, <laughs> and that's that. Uh, Thank you for
0: sharing all of this with us u- uniquely, and we look forward to ensure, or helping ensure that this all sees the light
1: of day. Uh, first of all, help me sell, sell my book, uh, The Lost Temple of Israel, because every penny that goes in there goes towards furthering the research, so I don't have to worry about uh, doing other things. That's number one. And number two, bringing the awareness of this site to just pass it around word of mouth. And look at, I have a page at uh, academia.edu where I have uh, a number of articles, number of for newspaper uh, clippings that came out on this. And I want people to know about this. And the more they know, the more likely it is that one day we'll find people who can help us get this all done. Which we there are all sorts of things that still need to be done from a perspective of scientific research to get more information out of what we out of the site.
0: Two very important plugs, and uh, we look forward to sharing that with our audience. And we look forward to, to be welcoming you back again to to hear how things have developed. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do, of course, also check out all the content we have for you on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week.